I loved it. And I saw the way that other people looked down upon us. Look, I played on sports teams all my life. You do not want to get my competitive streak going around things that I care about. This had kind of become, you know, my family. I started talking to people I knew, look, this is what we're going to do. This is the state it's in today. I want you to come down and I want you to think about what we're going to be. Welcome back to Building Better Games. Today, we're gonna to dig into one of the most under-discussed but critical skills a leader can have, relationship building, and ask the question, what does it mean to be a relationship-centric leader? As we dive in, we're gonna explore how to build trust with other leaders and people on your team, the core skills you will need to generate effective relationships with others around you, and how to maintain your principles and values and not get sucked into the political game. With us today, we have Zach Blitz, a close friend and a masterful leaders in the area of scaled leadership, particularly when it comes to building effective relationships. Our goal today is to give you some key skills as a leader on your journey towards building better games. Zach, thanks, man, for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you about all these topics because I always remember just sort of watching the way that you would solve problems and just wishing I had more of whatever that juice was that you had. I miss so much working with the two of you every day and like even discussing problems. I think it was, you know, and I say this a lot about, you know, people I worked with at Rive, but I, these were like the fondest times that I've ever had. And I think we all had such an obsessive focus around problem solving that it was, you know, it was super infectious. I think you know, because of my background as somebody who like studied a bunch of psych, like I see people problems everywhere. And so mm -hmm. I, that is that is definitely what I indexed in. And I think that's why, you know, why I had success and why I think I was helpful to you guys, because you guys knew way more like agile and skilled, you know, process techniques than I think I, I definitely brought coming in. So, yeah, it's just kind of always the way I've been. Yeah. So so actually, let's do a little bit of an intro of Zach Blitz. Where you at? What's going on? Yeah, so I'm Zach. I am in the Valley in Los Angeles. I am currently at Epic Games, where I'm a senior director of production over infrastructure and data. Prior to that, I was at Riot Games for seven and a half years. Originally from New York, went to college at Vanderbilt. Yeah, and then went to school for human and organizational development, learned a ton there, and then went to work in banking for a while. The financial collapse showed up, and I got fired, and it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I decided I wanted to be in the business of actually making things and not um, kind of buried in a back office doing, you know, large scale integrations. And so I joined a company in Santa Monica called Cornerstone On Demand, which was transformative for me. That's where I really learned about Agile. I spent three years doing Agile transformations across like seven teams. I got super burnt out. It was brutal. And one day the CISO caught me playing WoW at my desk and rating on European servers, I think during European hours. <laughs> and he was like, you gotta leave. You're not really learning or growing or, or doing anything here. Like you, there's a game company that can't hire fast enough across the street. I know someone who works there, like let's, you should talk to them. And that's how I, I joined Riot and became the head of infrastructure and operations there. I was there for about seven and a half years. I joined a startup for a little bit and now that didn't work out. So now I'm at Epic and yeah, doing the metaverse stuff, so. It's exciting. So you just started at Epic. Moving into a new role mm -hmm. is always a challenge. What's that been like? I have a pretty standard way of approaching it. First, I try to meet with everyone that I 
will ever need something from or will need something from me. And the reason I do that and think of that kind of universe is because I want to have provided value to people that I'm going to need something from before I ever ask for something. Mm. Because in relationships and especially at large companies, everyone's always trying to kind of get their own needs met. And so if I can be relied upon as somebody to help someone get their needs met, chances are we're going to have a good relationship. Whether or not like personally we're best friends, we'll have an effective working relationship. So I, I think about people through kind of a common psychological framework called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which basically describes that people have these kind of baseline level needs the needs get kind of tighter in a hierarchy and end at self-actualization. So in these meetings with all these people, I get their story. Where are they from? You know, siblings, pets, uh, significant others, and then generally like the resume, how they got to where they are, why they connect with the work that they do every day. I also try to find out what isn't working for them in their current state, either with my organization or with their team. Because I think if, again, this is generally where the needs arise that I can either help solve or, you know, talk to somebody else about trying to solve. And then I try to understand what they want to be when they grow up, because to me, that's the top of the Maslow pyramid mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how they self-actualize. Because in theory, if I'm going to be leading you, I know why you come to work every day, what your pain points are, and I can lead you. I, I, I can lead you. I, whether or not you like me, I think becomes irrelevant. And generally, I think in those conversations, I also wind up sharing a lot about myself. And I think that's genuinely where we're kind of like, uh, I think Aaron described it as like the general fondness for Zach comes from. It's like, I am generally interested in you. You learn a little bit about me. We have a shared experience and like, yeah. And this is built brick by brick. All those things build on each other to the point at which, you know, there's, there's mutual trust. And I think that's the goal I set out for in every relationship that I try to create. I saw some video where the guy was talking about job interviews and he was giving people feedback for being in an interview. And he was like, the number one thing that I see people doing wrong in job interviews is that they're focused too much on trying to be interesting and not enough on being interested. Mm. And I feel like that just triggered for me when you were talking there. Like when you hear that, what comes up for you? I think there's a lot we can learn as interviewers, <laughs> period, and interviewees. I think as interviewers, I think, look, before you start interviewing a person, like it is your job to kind of like get to know them a little bit. Even if you haven't read their resume, just find out how they're doing today. How is the interview process going? Like, you know, what questions were hard? Like get a sense of where they're at, you know, so you can help them feel comfortable so they can perform their best on the interview. I would also say that that shows up for me, Aaron, a lot in, you know, the last 15 minutes around like the questions the candidate brings. Because thoughtful questions the candidate brings where they're truly interested in what I do, in what our business is doing, in strategy, vision, all that stuff. I mean, we can all think of, we've all interviewed hundreds of candidates. You can always find somebody who, you know, it felt like they were truly interested in what you were doing and being there. People who ask great questions generally are really, 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 really good employees. So yeah, I do think it's important for people to be more interested than interesting. It sounds like you're employing that when you're talking to people in these early one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> you mentioned two things in when you were talking about how you were approaching things at Epic. 
One was, it isn't about being friends. You know, I need, I'm trying to establish an effective working relationship. And later on, you said, you don't have to like me for me to lead you effectively. And the fact that like friendship sort of emerges is, is an after effect or something like that, or the fact that people might end up liking you is an after effect to that. That just struck me as interesting there. I think at the beginning, I was trying to have a positive relationship with everybody. And over time, when you lead enough people, you realize that's impossible. It's largely because you represent authority. There was an old football coach for the New York Giants, Tom Coughlin, who used to talk about his like the team in terms of a rule of thirds. He used to say that a third is always going to follow me no matter what I say. They believe in authority, like you're the person in charge. I should listen to the person in charge. There's 33% of the team that is never going to want to follow you. And that has to do only with the fact that you represent authority and they have a problem with authority. And then you have the middle who are just kind of largely undecided. Your job as a leader is to win the undecided because then you have 66% of the group. And so that's how that <laughs> adapted over time, because I, I led people that did not like me personally and oftentimes did not agree with me. Mm-hmm. You guys remember this. We were leading Riot during a time when Riot was maturing differently than it had in the past. Like We grew up kind of like in the days of shipping League of Legends. We founded this organization to help us you know, build multi-tenancy into our platform and be able to ship multiple games on it. When we were thinking about that, a lot of the things we held sacrosanct as a league-only company needed to shift. And we were at the center of making those decisions. And many people across the game teams, League of Legends, within our own groups, disagreed with direction and did so openly, honestly, and, you know, what felt like very consistently. And I think it was our job to hear that, to empathize with the position, and to ultimately make the right decision for the business. But I think those conversations and that openness and honesty are impossible without the style of relationship that I described in the beginning, right? Mm. I think people feel squeezed out because, oh, you well, you disagreed with my direction, so I'm going to leave the company. My retention, you know, org-wise was always really good because even though people disagreed, they did understand why we were making the decision we were making and that they trusted me enough to know that I wouldn't lead us kind of into a ditch. And I had no background in infrastructure. So I had largely no business making a lot of the decisions I was making and I relied on others uh, for a lot of that. That's also, you know, something else like there's the never-ending debate on LinkedIn of, do you need to be an expert in a thing to lead? And you just described not being an expert in a thing that you led with a lot of success for many years. How do you view that? There's two things I would say. The first is when I was very junior in my career at Riot, I got pulled aside by a guy by the name of Richard Hensley. And on my interviews, my agile hadn't been great. And so, and he said, look, none of that shit really matters. It just doesn't. Like what matters is you solve organizational problems. And if you solve small ones, they'll give you bigger ones. And if you solve big ones, they'll give you bigger ones. And if they, right. And I truly believed in that. The other is that Oksana Kubishnaya told me, you know, when she handed me the the big job that she believed in me and trusted my judgment implicitly and that any decision I was going to make, she was going to back 100 percent. So I think I had good leaders who modeled that and who were able to describe what a world would look like if I was able to kind of, you know, grow in that way. The other thing is I think we really devalue psychology as a science in business. Mm. I think we're starting to understand like 
through HBS and all the things that are out there in the world about how to lead things. But like, I feel like, especially in tech, people read that stuff and they kind of go like, well, that's an interesting article, but they don't really know how, how to apply it, right? But they don't really understand kind of like how to kind of, you know, think about it in practice every day because I've been part of teams my whole life. I've spent a lot of times trying to make teams as great as they can possibly be. And I think part of that comes from a deep-seated competitiveness in me to just always want to see how good we can be as a group. There's a piece of what you just said that popped a question up for me. And that question is, what do you believe is true about human beings that is relevant to leaders at work? There are kind of two foundational beliefs I have. One, humans are basically good. And humans are basically trying to do the right thing, and they're trying to solve their individual Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're all running around doing our own version of that. And so people are going to do things that help them get to self-actualization. They are. like, And when that like works in the flow of the business, it's great. When it goes outside the flow of the business, you have problems. The other two are like, what's right is not always popular. Mm. You know, as a leader, you often have to make unpopular decisions that are the right decisions. And a lot of times your job is spent like justifying that decision making. When you've built a, a culture of trust and personal relationships, you have to spend far less time doing it. The other is that it's not the weight of the load that brings a man down. It's the way that they carry it. And I think we are often as leaders put in positions where we're giving really, really difficult, heavy things to carry. And how you enlist the help of others and think of leadership as a team exercise ultimately guides your success or failure. So I think all of that stuff are kind of like, I think, my core beliefs about humanity and leadership. I want to ask you more about that third one. If I put a ton on top of a guy, it doesn't matter how he carries it, it's going to crush him. But then if you say like, well, you know, he carries it in a wagon or something. How does that apply to how you perceive the load that's given to you? and the loads that you as a leader give to others? First of all, I, I want to say that every person is, is different. I think each of our ability to like take on work and figure out what, what's appropriate for us is different. And it changes all the time. Like, you know, Ben, you have kids. I've had kids. There are times when it is borderline impossible to get one or two deliverables over the finish line. And there are other times when things start to sort out that, you know, you can kind of get back to a normal capacity. And so. I think about it more like this, that figuring out yourself and your own boundaries around the work that you're willing to do, want to do, get excited about is more important than necessarily the amount of work that you're capable of doing. I think everyone has an upper limit. Mm -hmm. For me, I spend a lot, I've spent a lot of time in my own life trying to figure out what's the work that gets me excited, how much work is the right amount of work. Like there's a certain amount of self-reliance that I think is really important as a leader. Now you rely often on others to have that same knowledge of self. And it's not always there. I think we can all think about times where, mm. you know, we were giving somebody what seemed like kind of their normal amount of stuff. And for whatever reason, that day was a difficult day. And then you find out later that either the work wasn't done or there was some emotional response to it. And I think a lot of that has to do with understanding that humans are dynamic, humans are messy, and that like people have other things going on in their life besides work. And you need to be in touch with what's going on in your employees' lives. 
Otherwise, again, you cannot you cannot form that Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the brain and kind of like help effectively lead. You mentioned the word boundaries, and I want to go into that more. Actually, rarely see leaders doing a good job at creating, holding, or enforcing boundaries. Mm -hmm. So before we started recording, I, I mentioned this sort of scale. It's a simplistic scale. On the one extreme side, there's leaders who generate political capital through relationship building and through being perceived well. And on the other end, there are leaders who generate political capital through results and business results. There are some leaders basically that are just basically bulls in a china shop or you know they'll they'll just destroy problems run through walls do whatever they need to do to get results and oftentimes they struggle with the fact that they've pissed a lot of people off and they lose their ability to continue that trend for very long because now parts of the organization are against them and then on the other side people who are very savvy at building relationships but over focus on that and it's sort of like, well, everybody loves this person, but we realized after two years that they hadn't really done anything, you know? But one of the things I find interesting about people who value like their own likability very, very highly is that they're often not great about standing for something and like setting boundaries. I've seen you in situations where you entered a conflict with another leader and certainly the fact that you're a very likable guy was helpful in that situation, but it didn't stop you from being like, hey, this is wrong. And this is what I think right is. How do you do that? Yeah, I think boundaries for me, it's kind of like obscenity. It's like, you know it when you see it. Like in my case for boundaries, it's like, you know it when you feel it. I go back to what is the basic human need that they are trying to solve in that moment? What is the need they're trying to solve for themselves? What is the pressure the organization is putting on them, right? I try to understand their context and I get out of where I've gotten into trouble in the past is I get into like, here's what I need for my organization to be successful. If I lead with that, I'm fucked. Like it just won't, it, it, it never winds up in a good spot. I've run into that enough times. I think another thing that may be lost in the context here is like, I was running a service organization which had some products, but overall it was kind of more of a service than a product. So when you run kind of like an organization, the way that I kind of ran it in Riot, like what matters more is about my customer's context and understanding where they are. Now there's a line, like I'm not gonna let them, you know, make my people work 24 hours a day, or I'm not gonna give up like part of our remit in terms of what our job is for your organization to be successful or for you to hit your Maslow. There's reasons my organization exists. There's reasons why my people work the hours they work. Like you can't infringe upon that. But if I can understand your context, if I can understand your Maslow, if I can understand the pressures that are acting on you, I can probably get to a least bad solution for the both of us. Here's where I'm not gonna flex, but here's what I can give you that may be less bad. And people generally appreciate that. I think people also too appreciate making your internal monologue external. So here's how I arrived at like this being my answer, mm -hmm. right? And here's why this is a boundary that I'm not gonna flex on. People usually respect that. I think those two things kind of have created like the most positive outcomes in those scenarios. Mm -hmm. You're trying to reach a win-win, but it's in some cases, uh, I loved how you called it out, the combined least bad option. You know, it's almost like the, I'm trying to reach a not lose, not lose. And there, 
the established relationship with those individuals goes a long way because if there's not some amount of trust in the pre-established relationship, then your ability to externalize the internal dialogue, even that can get chopped off. But if they actually like, oh, I know Zach. I know Zach has historically showed up in a way where he's been intent about caring about what I care about. And caring about me too. Yeah. And so if I believe that, then when you show up, I'll give you enough rope, right? You know, I'll, I'll go like, okay, I'll listen to you. But if I don't believe that, if you were always just protective of your space to the point of putting all the walls up, right? All I, what I'm trying to do is defend my people. These are the boundaries. You can never cross them. Everything is locked tight. Then it's, you're not going to be able to have that conversation. And so, so you have to lead with showing people that actually you do care. Yeah. I think track records help too. That's another thing. Because in theory, when I come into that, I've already done something for them that helped them solve a need or a pain or something that they have, you know? So you remove that, like, kind of like the level of aggression that sometimes comes at you as leaders in these things where it's like, I assume that you're not going to hear me. I assume that, you know, you're not going to listen. I assume you're not going to do anything, right? That assumption's gone because I've removed that, you know, through careful planning and understanding of who they are as a person by listening to them, by solving a problem for them. So instead, what we're talking about are common problems and common, you know, hopefully common solutions. I want to throw something at you, and I'm curious how you respond. I'm new game lead, new game producer or whatever, or maybe I'm, I'm like, I'm pushing towards mid-level. And you're telling me, like, well, the key thing is you got to build the relationships with the people around you. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Where am I going to find time? I'm so busy. I've got one to three teams. I've got reports I got to fill out. Yep. I'm already doing, you know, 74 one-on-ones. How do you find time to go out of your way to reach to these external organizations and build trust? What would you say to someone? Look, you're saving yourself a lot of time down the road by doing this now. And I had this the other day. New producer joins a team. Teams are inherently tribes. Whether or not we want to recognize them as that, culturally they're tribes. And the human adaptation in tribal or group settings is to be wary of outsiders. That is our psychology. And so when you approach people as a new producer for the first time in a group, they are sizing you up. They are trying to figure out, are you a part of the tribe or are you a threat? Now, tell me what's easier. You've spoken to each of the five people on their team. You generally know who they are, what they care about, what they're working on, what their pains are, what they want to be when they grow up. Or you're walking in completely naked trying to lead people that you, you don't really know. You know their name and you know they're a senior database engineer. Tell me where you're going to get better results, right? And the same is true for customers. Anytime you walk into any kind of group setting and you're the new person, I think the best thing you can do is acknowledge that situation and try to be their friend <laughs> so, so that you and they can get what you need out of the relationship. Because mm -hmm. people come into game dev teams thinking, you know, that uh, like, you know, especially with producers, they're going to hate me because I exist. Like they're going to hate me because I, I want to implement process and they don't want processes. But as soon as you show them, hey, I'm here to help and I can get us to a better outcome than we would have gotten if I wasn't here. I mean, those attitudes change so fast. Within days. Some, I've seen it within hours. And I think just building relationships is just the quickest path to that. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of time wishing you had. Yeah. Echoes my own experience. And when I was in Afghanistan, I worked with a, a very experienced 
Sergeant First Class. And where I was very much like, you know, new, relatively new to the military, relatively new to the workforce, all these things. And here I am in Afghanistan. I'm just like, I just got to make sure all my stuff gets done. And he was always out helping people, helping every unit, every civilian contractor, everybody on the base. They all knew Sergeant White. They all knew he was a good guy. They all knew he'd help him out, even if he wasn't getting anything in return. And I realized over the course of that deployment just how much that helped us do our job. And what's interesting is it wasn't like it was some manipulative master plan that Sergeant White was running, right? It wasn't like he went into every situation like, ah, what are the three good things I can do for you? So you'll always put me first in the queue. Right, it was right. it was actually like, no, if I just show up with care and I realize it's okay if I spend some of my time helping you out because you have needs. We're all in Afghanistan. And so like, let's kind of band together. And there was this sort of mutual like benefit thing that occurred there. Yeah, it's very, it reflects what you're talking about. And I, again, you can look at that and you can say he was wasting all his time, but I looked at that towards the end of the deployment and I just thought about how easy that made so many months. I think too, that we don't want to acknowledge the mutual benefit. We want to think that everybody's here for like very altruistic reasons. And that like, we're just, we're just here pushing a common goal, trying to get a game out. And the reality could not be further from mm. the truth. Like everyone has a different reason for being at a game studio. They do. Some people, hey, it's my first job in games. I just, I'm testing the waters. Some people are like, I am so drawn to exactly what we're building. You know, it's a life pursuit to get an MMO out the door, right? Other people are just like, I don't care, dude. I'm just doing what I can to survive and feed the fam. Like to me, all of that stuff is valid. But like to not acknowledge that like, hey, I'm serving a need for you by being your producer. And like, you're here, you know, helping to make a game, but like there's mutual benefit in us serving each other. Like there is, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So Zach, you have a relationship centric view of leadership where you start with relationships, you start with knowing people. Common question we get and we see from producers actually at all levels, like leads in game dev, who should I have have one-on-ones with and why? And what does that look like? And, and, you know, like, what do I ask? How would you respond? If you're a single team producer, I would have a one-on-one with every person on your team, your manager, and whoever your key customers are. I would do that a half hour a week. You will get to a point, I think, rather quickly where you can uh, have kind of in every other week with team members or in every other week with customers, because customers really need a lot, other times not so much, use your best judgment. But that to me would kind of be table stakes. And in the ones with the team members, I would be constantly thinking about how you can provide more value via retro, via planning, via stand-up, so that the team gets better. And oftentimes, team members have the best ideas because they're living in that team every day for how it gets better. Don't be so foolish as to think that you have all the answers, Agile has all the answers, whatever, because you don't. If you're looking to grow and if you're looking to succeed, what you want to be constantly asking is, what makes me a 10 out of 10? And I know you guys had Jonathan McCaffrey on your podcast, he was the one who taught me this. If you ask them what makes me a 10 out of 10, they will have some constructive feedback for you. And you wanna constantly center your one-on-ones around what makes me a 10 out of 10? How do I do that? When you're pushing for a promotion, what am I doing differently from today that you would need to see in order for me to get promoted? Write it all down, 
go out, knock it all down. That's how you get promoted. Don't expect people to kind of bring that to you. With customers, it's how's my team doing? What do you need? Like, you know, how's it going on your side? Like, what are the problems you're solving? If you can generally ask those three questions and combine with some relationship building, I think you're gonna be okay. If you're in a scaled area, like where you're kind of like, hey, I'm over three teams, I'm over two or three teams. You know, for me, I think then you cut out the individual team member ones and maybe get to a lead. If you have like a tech lead on a team, I would talk to them more regularly. So that way you're cutting down from like, I don't know, 15 potential one-on-ones to three uh, to keep it manageable. But you want to spend more time with your customers then because your customer base, you know, when you when you kind of think about the permutations, you know, more teams equals more customers. You want to spend a lot of times with your customers and seeing if there are common problems that they, that they have across teams. If you can kind of see patterns in customer asks and through your understanding of their needs, you can often solve larger and larger problems using all three teams and their collective effort instead of just the one. That comes back to that thing you said, uh, Richard Hensley spoke to you about the idea of, you know, you, you solve the solve organizational problems, then solve bigger ones, then solve bigger ones. And there will always be a bigger one someone will hand you if they think you're capable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been true. I mean, throughout, I think, all three of our careers. So I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the hardest parts of a producer is like the first time you get handed a job where you get to pick what problem you work on. Because a lot of times, even as a senior producer, when you come in, you get handed the worst team. Like it, almost. That's <laughs> where they needed help. <laughs> like automatically. You're right. Exactly. And that's OK. Like, I think that's why you're a senior producer. You know, you're really good at solving really complex, challenging team level problems. The jump from senior to director, which I think is arguably the hardest jump in, I would say, any discipline, you know, art, technology, et cetera, has to do with your ability to kind of jump from one to multiple concurrently and spreading the gospel through influence as opposed to directly, because it's just hard. It's hard. I wanted to ask you about the story you told me about your fraternity experience. And as you were telling me, I found myself wondering why like what is it about you that made makes that a story of pride i mean you took this group of guys and you made them into something that they didn't think that they could be and i feel like so much of that harkens to what we do with teams i want to dig into the meaning of that story and because i think it tells us a lot about you sure Vanderbilt, at the time i went had a very heavy i think it was like 50 percent student body was in fraternity so and when I showed up on campus, I, I didn't really know anyone. And the one guy I knew was in this small little fraternity in like the darkest house. Like I'm talking just like barely any lights. The parties were like very sparsely attended, really just by their best friends. And everyone just was so kind to me. You know, your first time away from home is really, really tough in a school setting. Where I had I had like a job to do every day. I had to be really self-reliant. And that kindness meant so much to me. And so they let me in, even though my GPA was like terrible. I loved it. And it meant a lot to me. And I, over the summer, saw the way that other people looked down upon us. Again, like, look, I played on sports teams all my life. You do not want to get my competitive streak going around things that I care about and around the people that I love and I care about, you know, and and this this had kind of become, you know, my family. So over that summer, I started talking to people I knew 
who are gonna be freshmen. I'm like, look, this is what we're gonna do. This is the state it's in today. I want you to come down and I want you to think about what we're gonna be and here's what we're gonna be. Our parties are gonna be like really well attended. Like everyone who's gonna be in the house is gonna be someone that you would want to bring home to meet your parents as your friend. And like, we're gonna be really good at sports because like, you know, we all like to play sports and we're gonna have a great time. And that was like kind of the core pillars. I'm like, do not pay attention to what we are now. This is for us, this is for the next three or four years. So I went out and probably sacrificed my own grades uh, and, <laughs> and recruited hard. And we, we, got, we got the largest pledge class I think the fraternity had ever gotten. And it was like, like, I think the house was like maybe 16 or 20 people. And I think we, we got like 20 people. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and then the following year, I think we got like 37 or something. And basically by the time we left, it was unbelievable and completely unrecognizable. And we, we really, all we did was as people came in, we talked to them about who we wanted to be over and over again, and why we wanted to be that way and why it was important to us. And it attracted the people who were drawn to that. One of the guys is the CEO of Splash now. Like, there are some incredible leaders who have come out of that group. They're like agents in Hollywood. Like, it's a very impressive group of young men. And, you know, I, I wish I could say that, like, the transformation was, like, really hard and grueling. Like, it wasn't. Like year after year, we just had, you know, once you start attracting that first class or that second class of people who just really believe in what you're doing, it becomes really easy to get everybody else on board. So help me understand. I feel like another person may have just been like, well, these guys are nice, but I'm not joining that frat. I'm going to join another frat that benefits me more, that like adds more prestige to me, right? Or gives me more access to resources. Like, why was the, the dodgeball story the more attractive path? I think, yeah, it's a great question. But, Average but it's like, shows. <laughs> I think because I like people problems, like, why is this this way? And like, how can we make it not this way just by changing the way people think or the way they approach the problem or view themselves or maybe aligning our, our the way we all self-actualize together? Like, how quickly can I turn it around? and test it and see how well it actually works. And the reality is it works phenomenally well. In the hands of people who understand mutual trust at scale and like what it takes to build that, it is like probably the best and easiest tool to turn an organization around quickly. Trust is such an interesting concept. It comes up in our work a ton because it seems to be the foundation of almost everything that matters. Trust to me is, I believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, and you believe that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And that's not in front of each other. That's like when I'm off doing my thing and you're off doing your thing. That's trust. I don't perceive that that's valued as highly as it should be amongst leadership and games. Why not, do you think? It's hard for me to say. I think the places that value it destroy the places that don't. <laughs> like, I've seen that working at Riot. I've seen that working at Epic now. Like, the places that have a high degree of trust, trust was built into the structure. Mm -hmm. It was like, you need to believe that somebody is there doing the right thing every day, you know, in their area of expertise. Otherwise, we're going to be caught in this weird loop of second-guessing each other as we scale, and we won't be able to benefit players. 
as we talk about this, I'm like all these scenarios are popping up in my head. One of the things that always grinds on me quite a bit is when I see there's some change happening. Maybe I'm the bearer of bad news or I'm the messenger. You know, we're shutting down some project or we're spinning down some team or we have to lay some people off. And trust is on the line, I think, in these situations. And yet I, I often see leaders make decisions that seem politically expedient or seem like expedient for them and their fellow leaders in the moment, but just have an, a massive trust cost. And they don't seem to like measure the trust gauge of the team and be like, this is a core metric. It's like, or view that if that's really high, that we get a lot of value from that. Or, and if it's really low, we won't get any value. Because you just said companies that value that, they kill companies that don't. If you look at teams that trust each other performance-wise, and I think this is what we talk a lot about with DEI, is like mm -hmm. inclusion, every voice matters, like, you know, having diverse teams, you know, outperforms. The key underpinning that they don't talk about is an assumption that these people all trust each other and that there are no hidden agendas. And I think that's a major part of inclusion that we probably don't talk about enough. Just as that all matters, this is a key component of that, and it is what drives high-performing teams. When I ask the question, why isn't there trust? It comes down to what we incentivize with the systems we put in place and what they're trying to do. If you're putting a process in place that is primarily about risk management and trying to make sure people don't do the wrong thing, right? Setting up constraints and enforcing compliance, you encourage everybody to some extent be second guessing because that's what the system's doing. It's constantly asking, wait a minute, are you doing the right thing? Wait a minute, did you get your, wait, 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 wait. When you put a system in place that is about helping people find opportunity and allows them to operate autonomously, then it encourages and it incentivizes trust inside of that system. Because if I'm going to build a system that is actually more about my highest performers being even higher performing rather than my lowest performers not screwing up, since everybody's operating in the same system and it's very hard to tell who the high and low performers are, I really want to free my high performers. And that's a trust-filled act to free my high performers to go do their best work. Versus, I'm going to make sure none of my low performers ever make a mistake. And if you do that, you're also limiting your high performers. Like the, This is the old, archaic, traditional, defined systems thinking approach versus the new, empirical, adaptable agile, whatever you want to call it. Human-centric. So, so what's interesting is now we're seeing as the world transitions, a whole new set of value-adding behaviors is relevant now. And I think that's what you're pointing to, Zach, is that in this world, the world where we don't, the problem isn't necessarily clear or the solution isn't necessarily clear, like, it's like, how many iterations can we get through in the shortest period of time possible? And if I trust you, I can just come up to you and say, hey, Zach, I don't know about this idea. I'm like, I'm feeling bad about this. I don't think that this is taking us to the goal. And you can be like, Aaron, that's crazy. Because that trust is there, we can now have that very open conversation. As an example, that's a value-adding conversation. Whereas in the past, that was like, get the fuck back to work. Why are you guys, <laughs> why are you guys talking? Zach, you screw on widget A and Aaron, you screw on widget B and you both punch out at 515. There's no conversation to be had here. And I think a lot of managers and leaders are still caught in that old way of thinking. And now it's like to trust is actually, and to build trust is actually, it's the core currency of every system now. 
when my organization was running the best and I had leaders beneath me who I fully trusted and they had leaders beneath them that they fully trusted, we ran without a risk registry for an organization of 225 people. And I, that's gonna sound insane to a lot of people, but people would just come up and be like, hey, here's what we're working on. Here's what the problems are. I know you're expecting it at this date. Here are my risks to delivery. Can you help me mitigate that? And that's my job as a leader to help them mitigate that. Go talk to customer, go talk to stakeholder, get more money, get more time, iron triangle. That's my job. But when organizations run well, that's how it feels. You are not bogged down in status meetings and yeah, we're hitting, we're checking every box and we're hitting every deliverable because who knows what the quality of that is. People are free to make mm. the quality choices that they need to make. They're free to make, you know, basically the, the risk assumptions and mitigations and dependency mappings that, you know, they, they need to make in order to be successful. It's not on you. Your job is to get out of the way and when they need the, you know, they need value out of the escalation you provide. There was something you, you said in there about if this is all about status reports and just checking off all the boxes, sure, things may be getting done, but I have no idea if it's actually good. Whereas if I trust everybody, I'm less concerned about the roadmap or like getting, making sure all the status reports are coming back green. Yeah. And, and I think also you spend, you know, a week or whatever, putting together the deck or the report for the mega meeting, right? But what's interesting is I've noticed once trust is firmly established in there, like no one even pays attention to the data anymore. It's almost like it becomes irrelevant. Like you get two slides in and then everyone's so excited to talk about other stuff. They don't even care what was in the rest of the deck. And there's something to learn from that, I think, which is that I think we often use those kinds of artifacts to replace trust or to be to stand in for trust. You see how quickly we throw them out when trust is really strong. I don't think it's all bad. You know, those things have their place when trust is absent. But show me the artist who isn't like a craftsman and somebody who cares so deeply about their own work that management getting in the way and prescribing to them what pixel perfect means is a better definition of done than what the artist has in their brain. Now, you may tell the artist, hey, you only have X amount of time to iterate on it because we have an, a number of things to do. Just get it to the best place you can. Like as leadership, you're an impediment. So if you show up and you're just like, hey, I'm providing you an impediment to done or to meeting your customer's needs, and you must you know, show up at X meeting or prove to me it's pixel perfect, like that's an erosion of trust with your employee. And ultimately it becomes an erosion of trust to your end consumer because they can see that management has had their fingers on it. Um, and the artist knows as well. And I think that's maybe I'm a little different in the way I think about that kind of stuff. Mm. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us today. And thanks, Zach, for being here with us. This was super fun, man. I want to go over the key takeaways from this podcast for everybody. The first one is focus on providing value and meeting the needs of others as the basis of building relationships from day one. Two, demonstrate to people in any way that you can, as often as you can, that you care about them. Number three, Talk to your teams often about who we want to be as a group and what we stand for and what we believe. This is a fantastic way to get alignment and keep alignment and rally people around a bigger vision. And on that vision, you can build great things. And then number four, remember that trust is a core currency. It is somewhat abstract at times, but don't forget how powerful it is. If you build trust, 
you can do almost anything on that foundation. If this episode helped you today, please take a moment right now to rate or review us on whatever platform you're listening. Those reviews are worth their weight in gold for us. Your support helps us bring you more content. Thanks so much for listening.